0: You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the Greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at Facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Well, I invite you to return to John's Gospel. As we continue in our study, we'll pick up in verse or chapter 10. I'm going to begin reading verses with verse 1 and read through verse 21. John chapter 10, verse 1. truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for No one takes it from me, but I lay it down. Of my own accord, I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, O Lord, we so require your blessing this morning as we study your word. Father, we ask that you be pleased to teach us and to open our hearts, Lord, to these tremendous passages that are before us. These verses are tremendous. This is truly holy ground that we come to uh, this morning, Father. And Father, we pray that, Lord, uh, you would open our eyes afresh, Cause your word, O Lord, uh, to be seen and understood by us. And, O Father, may we, as to use the language of James, may we not just be hearers only of the word, but, O Father, by your grace, may you make us doers. Help us to align our lives, O Father, by the truths that are contained here. We pray these things in your precious name. Amen. And amen. I think I ought to say the same thing as we come to chapter 1 that I said when we were coming to chapter 9 and, and saying this over and over again. I don't want to give anyone the impression that I'm against subheadings. I'm not against subheadings. When you're looking for something in Scripture, su- the subheadings are your friends. Uh, when you're looking back through passages of Scripture and you're looking through those subheadings, are really. I find them really helpful. Um, I don't have the Bible memorized to the point that I can just turn to any verse. Uh, uh, those subheadings are are really helpful. But as I brought uh, up, as we are approaching John 9, I, I brought up a couple times, sometimes the, the subheadings uh, can cause us to stumble a little bit. And I think chapter 10 is another example where it, it may cause us to stumble. Uh, many of you... Um, If you have the ESV open or the NIV, we'll have a subheading. It says, I am the good shepherd or the good shepherd or something to to that uh, description. Um, So um, that can, in our minds, subconsciously lead us to uh, uh, think, okay, we're off onto something completely new here. And we can stumble if we start to isolate chapter 10 uh, from chapter 9. Uh, because uh, what I hope to show here is there's an intimate connection between chapter 10 and chapter 9, just as we saw an intimate connection between chapter 9 and chapter 8. And perhaps right now it would be as good a place as any just to go ahead and show these connections. They're very important. If you, if you turn back to chapter 8 and verse 12, there Jesus makes an incredible announcement. Uh, he says in verse 12 there, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me... Will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That verse has been blessing people. I used this for. I talked to a man uh, on Wednesday, a Friday. I'm sorry, Friday. Came across a man who uh, he is grieving. He lost his wife recently, and uh, he's just just really having a tough time. You can see that. You can see that from 50 yards away. And uh, I approached him, and and we had uh, some discussion and. And he was talking about how this world's just going this way and going that way. And I'm like, yeah, it's a dark, dark place. I said, but let's keep in mind and let's remember that Jesus is the light of this world. And this man opened, I mean, he lit up. It was almost like the light of, of Christ just lit up him up. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. It lit him up. And when I saw he was lit up, I went ahead and continued to quote. And I said, whoever follows him will not be in darkness now, will he? And it was just amazing to watch watch the Lord light this otherwise very despondent soul, very grieving soul to light him up with his word. Jesus makes this comment, doesn't he? He says, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me, will not walk in darkness. And I spent a lot of time devo- uh, developing that. He says that in the context of the Feast of Booths and in, in the wake of a celebration of the rite of lights, if you will, which commemorated the uh, uh, the Lord being with the fathers in the wilderness by a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by the day. And what Jesus is in essence is saying, hey, you, you know that that cloud in the day and that pillar of fire at night. I am that pillar of fire is what Jesus is saying. And the connection of John chapter 9 with that is clearly seen in the fact that as Jesus departs from the temple area, and that takes us to John chapter um, uh, uh It'd be John chapter 8. Let me see here. I'm getting ahead of yourself, Rick. Um, as they're picking up stones in John chapter 8, verse 59, now, I've pointed to this several times. They pick up stones to throw at him. Why? Because he's making these statements. And if you look in verse 59 there, you see Jesus hides himself from them. He hides himself, and this is an echo of what we read in the Old Testament prophets, where the Lord hides himself from the apostasy of Israel. Let's not look at this verse, as I've said several times and hope to say many more times, that Jesus is fleeing from them because he's afraid of the rocks. No, 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 no. There's no harm going to come to the sovereign one of the universe here. Uh, until he's ready to lay his life down, as we're going to see in our present chapter. No, he's hiding himself. He's hiding. What we need to see here is the glory is departing from the temple. And as the glory departs from the temple, it could have been as he was leaving the temple, it could have been as soon as he was walking away from the temple that he comes across the man born blind. Now, he's he's just made the statement he is the light of the world, and whoever follows him will not be in darkness. And here comes... Jesus walking past this man who has never seen light. He's never seen light. He's never seen any light. He's been born blind. And Jesus, Jesus gives us, Jesus gives us this incredible news in verse 3, John chapter 9, verse verse 3, that this is the will and design of the Father, that the works of God might be displayed in this man. Jesus says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one else can work. And then in verse 5, what does he say? I am the light of the world. And it's almost like, I told you I'm the light of the world. Now I'm going to prove to you I'm the light of the world. And what does he do? He heals this man of his blindness. And in terms of his physical blindness, he is made to see right away. In terms of his spiritual blindness, we've seen a progression. Last week, we saw a progression in this man. Uh, Very clearly in verse 11, he refers to Jesus as the man called Jesus. Um, As you look to verse 17, he calls him a prophet. Until finally, when we get down to verse 38, he calls him Lord. He says, I believe. And he offers him worship. And the important thing here is that Jesus doesn't correct him. Like an angel, a holy angel would have. Jesus is who he says he is. I am the light of the world. Now, um, having demonstrated that, uh, Jesus makes some concluding remarks here. And these concluding remarks in John chapter 9 are essential in understanding John chapter 10. Jesus says in verse 39, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. You remember last week I brought up, sometimes we can trip over that because elsewhere Jesus said, I didn't come to judge, I came to save. And of course what Jesus is making reference to is as the light shines, it's inevitably going to sort people out. There's going to be those who are going to come to the light. There's going to be those who are going to flee from the light. And in essence, a judgment is made. Uh, just by virtue of the fact that the light is, uh, that's what's being made reference to there. But then Jesus goes on, and he says, uh, he says, uh, or the, some of the Pharisees near him, verse forty, heard him say these things and said to him, "Were we blind also?" And Jesus goes on and says, "If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains." That's somewhat cryptic. What do we make of that? What is Jesus saying? I think the easiest way to understand it is, you know, some of us maybe have some friends or we have some family members or we have some people we work with that you can't teach. You try to teach, but, you know, we we might affectionately say, you know, uncle such and such or, you know, my brother such and such or my cousin such and such, you can't teach him anything because he already knows everything. You can't teach him anything because he already knows everything. I think you know the kind of character I'm talking about. You try to talk to them about the gospel. You try to talk to them about the Bible. And even though they might not even be able to name some of the books of the New Testament, they've still already said, oh, you the Bible. You can't trust the Bible. They've got it all figured out. And in having it all figured out, they're making a claim to be able to see. They're making a claim to be able to see. They can see, whereas we can't yet see. Maybe we'll we'll come to see, but currently we can't see, but they can see. And if you think of it this way, this is what the Pharisees are doing. Oh, they know Jesus is a sinner. That's what they say, right? Oh, we just know that. Well, do you now? They're claiming to be able to see. And Jesus is saying in verse 39, For judgment I came into this world that those who, who do not see may see. That would be our blind man. Those who claim to see may become blind. That would be these leaders. Now, we need to have that in our minds as we come to chapter 10. We can divide chapter 10 uh, roughly into two parts, at least the, chapter 10, the part of chapter 10 that we read. And we have in verses 1 through 6, we have this figure of speech, uh, looking at uh, verse 6 there, this figure of speech, and then in verses 7 through 18, we have an explanation, and it's important that we understand it's not just an explanation of this figure of speech. It's an expansion of this figure of speech. You remember I've said several times that, that John seems simple until you start, under, until you start studying it. It's, it's, in a sense, deceptively um, simple. Um, you think you have a handle on this, and then you start going through it verse by verse, um, and it suddenly becomes quite profound and quite complex. Now, uh, if we look here, let's just let's just re- let's just take a look. It, you notice that Jesus says in John chapter ten verse one, he says the words, "Truly, truly, I say to you." Now, we've encountered that before. And what is Jesus saying? Actually, the Greek. Most of you know the Greek. You know half the Greek to this. Um, you know the word "Amen." And literally in the Greek, it's omen, "Amen, Amen." Lego, whomin? You know, two of the words: "Amen, Amen." Uh, Lego means "I say," whomin to you. It could be translated "True, truly, truly." I say to you. Certainly, certainly, I say to you. Uh, Our Spanish friends say "de cierto, de cierto." It could be put that way. "En verdad, en verdad." That means "In truth, in truth." I. Uh, What it means is this is a certain statement. What Jesus is saying is this. He is saying just as certain as God spoke creation into existence. What I am about to say is true. This is certain. He says, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. Now we might look at that and we say, wait a second, what's that got to do with the current argument? And what is this all about? Now, If we were, you know, if the industry of our area was shepherding, we would have a better understanding of what this is all about Uh, because in ancient times and even in some cultures today, uh, there's in the town square, there's this thing called a sheepfold. And it's a pen. It's like a, it's an enclosure made typically out of stones. Today it would probably be constructed out of cinder block or something. And it's, the walls can be 10 to 12 feet high. It's got one door, one way in, one way out. If we were all shepherds, we'd watch our sheep all day, and in the evening hours we'd bring our respective flocks to this sheepfold. There'd be a watchman at the door, and uh, he knows us, we know him, and we would put our flock in there for safekeeping for the night. And we would collectively bring our flocks in there for safekeeping at night. Now Jesus says, now they would all have understood this. They, 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 they he's speaking in terms that they're they're going to get right away. And they certainly would understand this. And Jesus says, listen, he who enters the sheepfold by the door or doesn't enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in another way, that man's a thief and robber, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep, of course. I mean, the easiest way to go about this would be to go to the door, wouldn't it? Why, why would you try to scale the wall? Um, you certainly are, do not have the benefit or the welfare of the sheep in mind. Uh, you certainly don't have the benefit uh, or welfare of the owner of the sheep uh, in mind. It's kind of like, why would we enter a house through the window? Who enters the house through the window? A thief or a robber—that's uh, who enters through the window. Notice, Jesus says in verse three. To uh, let's look at verse two. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. Yeah, the gatekeeper knows. He knows the knows the shepherd. Um, but he's not the only one who knows the shepherd. Look at verse three as it continues. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own by name and leads them out. Um, in preparing for this morning's message, I read a lot of, a lot of stories uh, from several different sources of um, uh, both in, in ancient times and even in modern times of shepherds using um, whistles, certain whistle Shepherds each have their own whistle. And they'd come to the sheepfold, and they would blow this whistle, and the sheep would know the whistle. So out they'd come to follow their shepherd. But in other cases, uh, some of the shepherds actually would call each sheep by name. They'd have a name for each one of them. And they actually would respond to those names. Uh, names like long ears, white nose, different names like that were referenced in some of the stories. Um, they they would come. It puts you in mind of our pets. Some of us have dogs, and some of us have cats. I mean, if your dog, you call your dog by name, they they respond, don't they? They learn to respond to certain phonetics, phonetics, and they'll 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 respond. Uh, that's the idea here. And um, Jesus says in verse four, when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Says so stranger will not follow, but they will. Flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech. What kind of figure of speech do we have here? If you have a King James translation open, it says parable there. I think probably the rest of us have figure of speech. Um, the word parable, however, is not mentioned in the, the original, and it's not really a parable. This is actually a. It's actually a um, more like an allegory, and there's a big difference. You know, parables typically start this way, as or like. Think about Jesus' parables. He'll say something like, the kingdom of heaven is like. Um, That's a parable. A parable is an expressed comparison where there's an express. Typically we use as and like, whereas allegories, uh, allegories will, um, they're implied comparison. Jesus uses, they're they're metaphors. What they basically are, long metaphors, extended metaphors. We use metaphors in our language all the time. We might not be aware of it. Jesus used metaphors. He says, he calls Herod a fox. Tell that fox. Um, We don't understand that Herod's actually a fox. No, we won't understand it that way. But when Jesus says, tell that fox, it sure paints a picture to us, doesn't it? We get it. And that's what Jesus is doing here. And I'm pointing this out to you because when we're studying, whether it be an allegory or whether it be a parable, we need to be really careful here that we don't try to find hidden meaning under every detail. You're going to get in trouble if you do that. I have a commentary in my office written by an expositor that I love to read. Uh, He's writing about 100 years ago, and I enjoy reading him. I learn a lot from him. That's what he does with this. And I didn't even finish his exposition of this because I saw what he was doing. He's looking for, he's he's uncovering uh, speculative meanings under all these details, and you're headed for a mess when you do that. You're headed for a mess. Why is this important? It's important for this reason. You know, I've passed out more Bibles in the last three weeks than I've been able to pass out in the last I don't know how many years. And as I was passing out one Bible to a person here very recently, that person said to me, you know, I don't know if I want a Bible. I mean, everyone's got their own take on the Bible. They've got their own interpretation. And how am I supposed to understand this thing? And, and I explained to them, I said, listen, there's so many interpretations of the Bible. I mean, if, if you learn how to use correct interpretive techniques, you're going to solve a lot of that. And they're like, really? I'm like, yeah, think about how you read a birthday card. Do you read a birthday card like it's your high school science textbook? I mean I hope not. I hope you don't read your anniversary card that way. I mean we know better. We know it's an anniversary card. Our minds are mentally already set up for this um, and, and and the same thing comes here. We need to learn our our minds need to be set up whether we're reading a psalm, which is largely poetry. some psalms are wisdom literature. we 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 can tell when we read those psalms. When we come to this, we need to understand that some of these details are just details that are necessary in order to tell the story. And Jesus is not implying any significance to those details. But there are other details that are carrying the freight uh, of the significance that Jesus is trying to drive to us. And someone will say, well, how do we know the difference? Three things. Context, context. And and you'll like this. I tell my Hispanic friends, I mean, I've, I've learned contexto, contexto, y contexto. They get that. Um, that's, and it's, what I like about it is it's not hard to learn that one, is it? Context, context, though. Add an end and say it funny and you got it. Um, uh, of course, they wouldn't be... They, well, they would say I say it funny uh, for sure, but it's context. And in the context here, we don't have to guess what is significant because Jesus is going to come out and tell us what is significant. Before we move on, there's just a little aside that I want to share. In verse 4... We do get some leadership lessons, and this is a side here. This isn't a side bonus. If you look at verse 4, notice that Jesus says when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. There's a leadership lesson right there that I just want to share on the side. we will spend a lot of time. We could spend all more rest of the morning on it. But notice how Jesus leads. He doesn't drive from behind and crack a whip. He leads from in front. I think there's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lesson that, um, that we all should try to follow. Sometimes I think about things and I, I'll ask myself, wait a second. If we go about things this way, we're behind driving. Uh, we don't want to be behind driving. We want to be, uh, be leading. Um, and this is what Jesus does. Just a little on the side there. So here we are. We got this figure of speech. Jesus has used this figure of speech. Uh, they don't understand. So what does Jesus do? Verse seven, he begins to explain. Notice how he starts. Truly, truly, I say to you. But then he says something that's a little bit unexpected. He says, "I am the door." I'm like the door. And I think it's a little bit unexpected. And that's why I say Jesus is not only explaining but he's expanding. And this has caused a lot of heartburn for interpreters. like, so, wait a second, how can he be the door and be the shepherd at the same time? Well, as soon as you understand the language, the, the problem evaporates immediately. It's a metaphor. We do this all the time. We don't think anything about it. For example, let me just give you an example. Sometimes people will refer to businessmen as suits, here comes the suits, or uh, we could refer to a CEO, perhaps. Here comes the suits, or the, the upper um, workers in a company, if you will, uh, the bosses. Here comes the suits. Okay, we're using suits as a metaphor for these folks. But in the same, in, the, in two sentences later, we might call them bean counters. Here comes the bean counters. That's often meant in a negative way. And I don't mean it in a negative way, but I'm just it's for example I just thought of. Maybe it's a bad example, but but here the same person is being called by two different metaphors, and we don't think anything about it. And that's what's going on here. Why can't Jesus be also the door and, and the shepherd? He can and he is. Now, some will say, well, what is meant by Jesus being the door? I could yap and blab, but I think the very best thing to do is just to ask you to turn back to John chapter 1. Keep your place in John chapter 10. But John chapter 1, a couple of verses, I think, just, just open this up. Jesus is speaking with Nathanael in John chapter 1, verse 48. And um, in fact, in verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, how do, you, how do you know me? Jesus answered before Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Now look at verse 51. And he said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you. Jesus is fond of that statement, isn't he? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, when we were studying this passage, it was a long time ago, but we were thinking of Jacob's ladder, weren't we? A ladder that reaches to the heavens. And who is Jesus? He is this ladder that reaches to the heavens. In other words, he is the way, isn't he? To the heavens. And remember what I told you, John's gospel, it can be a little tricky to teach and preach because... It's like them dolphins. Remember the dolphins? They jump up out of the water. You see them, and then they submerge. They're still there, but you don't see them for maybe a a few verses or you don't see them for a few chapters. Then they come back up again. And the tricky thing is, how far do we develop them as we come along? I'm really trying really hard only to develop this thing as it naturally, uh, as John naturally uh, reveals it to us. Uh, But here we see Jesus as the way, the porthole. And if we want to use the language of John, Chapter 10, the door. He's the door. He's the door. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Verse 8, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep do not listen to him. Now, who is Jesus talking about in verse 8? Who are the thieves and the robbers? He says all who came before him. Are we to think of Moses? Are we to think of Abraham? Abraham? Are we to think of the prophets, Isaiah, Hosea, all the others? The answer to that, of course, is no. And someone says, how do we know that? Well, for starters, Jesus speaks of Moses. Moses spoke of him. He quotes Moses. He quotes Isaiah. He quotes from the Old Testament books and refers to them as the word of God as he does so. So we know that. But there's another detail right here in verse 8. Now, if some of you have NIVs open, this is going to be obscured a little bit because if my memory serves me correctly... It says something like, all who came before me were thieves and robbers. Am I correct on that, any NIV users? Okay, that's a, a, it's actually in present tense. It should read, all who came before me are thieves and robbers. Now, why is that so important? Because Jesus is talking about something that is going on right now. And it's a situation that's been brewing for some time, but in that particular epic. These thieves and robbers are people who are presently there. They are thieves and robbers, if you will. They are thieves. Now, who is he speaking about? He's speaking about the leaders. He's speaking about the leaders because the leaders have refused to come through the door. Yet they want to lead the sheep. Now, there's only two ways into the pen, isn't there? You either go through the door. If you can't get through the door, then you've got to scale the wall. I and mean, it's starting to make sense, isn't it? They're refusing to enter through the door. But Jesus says, listen, the sheep don't listen to him. The sheep don't listen to him. Let's, let's think about, let's think about the, uh, uh, the blind man. You know, as, as, as he gets his sight... Remember the neighbors interview him in chapter 9. The neighbors interview him. They're like, how? how? They, they can see that he can see, and they, they want to know how this happened, and they interview him, and he tells them. So then they take him to the religious leaders, and the religious leaders interview him. They're not buying it, so they, call him, they go to his parents, and they question his parents. Well, now at this point they're not buying it because they don't want to buy it. But then they come back to him in verse uh, 24, a second time. It's John chapter 9, verse 24. Uh, They call the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. The man answers, Whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I, I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Verse 26, They said to him, Well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Now notice how he answers. We pointed this out last week. He said, I have told you already. You can see he's getting frustrated with them. I told you already. And you would not listen. Why? Do you want to hear it again? And he says, do you also want to be his disciple? A, almost, it's, if we would have been there, I think, I think a lot of you would have put your hands over your lips like, did I just hear that? Did he just say that? And of course, that gets them pretty upset in verse 28. They reviled him saying, you are his disciple. We're a disciple of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And then the man says, why, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opens my eyes. What is this guy getting at? He's getting at these folks are starting to look like a Coke Coke bottle with 7-Up in it. I had a professor that used to use that analogy all the time. He said, if I offered you a Coke bottle with 7-Up in it, would you drink it? (laughs) Leaves a lasting impression, doesn't it? I can tell by Laura's facial expression, she's not going to take it. She's going to say, I'm good. Thank you. She'll probably say it real nicely. Uh, But no. Um, He's starting to look at these guys like, what's wrong with you guys? My whole point is, he's not listening to them, is he? He's not listening. John 9, or John uh, chapter 10, verse 9. Jesus continues, he says a second time, I'm in the door. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. What's Jesus doing here? The main thrust of what Jesus is doing here is making a contrast between his sheep and those who are not his sheep. And really, more specifically, uh, between his sheep and and these thieves and robbers. Or we could put it another way. It's between his sheep and the Pharisees and the religious leaders of that day. And let's be mindful here. This is something that's really important and we need to understand. These leaders were the leaders who would have been in the newspapers. They're the leaders who would have been covered by News 9. They're the leaders who would have been covered by uh, CNN. These are the prominent leaders, if you will, religious leaders of the day. We need to understand that. Um, And I I think I could safely ask you, I mean, would you feel comfortable following some of the prominent leaders that you would see covered by the news today or in some of what the world considers the prominent pulpits or the prominent places? The answer is no, isn't it? You're going to be a lot like this blind man said, what's wrong with you? Why are you saying this stuff? That's not scripture. If that describes you, do you realize how blessed you are? I ask myself this question. If that describes me, how blessed I am, that I'm not left to be bamboozled by these thieves and robbers. If we're just going to judge by sake of numbers, The world would say these are the leading guys. But if we judge them by the straight edge of God's holy word, what do we find out? They're thieves and robbers. Now, this brings us to verse 11. And Jesus is changing metaphors. He says, I am the good shepherd. Then he says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was a hired hand. Now notice he's expanding here. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He's he's speaking about the hireling. Uh, The hireling. Who is the hireling? The hireling is the person who probably does a good job in fair weather. He would do a good job in fair weather, but as soon as the clouds come, as soon as the storms come, as soon as some difficulty comes, or as soon as a wolf shows up, what's he going to do? He's going to abandon his post, and he's going to flee. And that's the comparison that Jesus is making. In verse 13, he says he flees because he's hired and cares nothing for the sheep. He's in this for a paycheck is what he's in it for. In verse 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me. And then Jesus expands on this and makes this great statement. Look what he says in verse 15. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Let's stop right there and take that in for a minute. What is Jesus saying there? He says his sheep know him. He says he knows his sheep. And then he goes on to say that this knowledge that the sheep have of him and he has of the sheep is reflective of the intimacy and the knowledge that Jesus has with the Father. Now, that's an amazing statement. That's an amazing statement. See, we can, we can be adopted into a family and feel like we're maybe a third fiddle or a fourth fiddle or a fifth fiddle or whatever, can't we? Not in God's family. Not in his family. Because if you've been adopted into God's family, the relationship and intimacy that Jesus has with you is reflective of that same intimacy that Jesus enjoys with the Father. In fact, don't warm your heart. I mean, we, we, we spend a lot of time on Sunday morning praying, don't we? What I love about this church is I have yet to hear anyone complain that I pray so long. I have never, in fact, I never, I, I, No one ever complains that I preach too long. No one ever complains that I pray too long. And I think think a lot of this has to do with we understand. We understand what we're doing, don't we? Who are we before? As we come together and we join our hearts together and we pray, who are we in front of? Who are we before? We're before the sovereign creator of the universe. Who's come in the person of Jesus Christ to go to a cross so that we can live, so that we can have life. Does he care about the issues that are in our life? Absolutely he cares about the issues in our life. And we gather together and we pray. We got a lot to pray about. You can't do that in two minutes. You can't do that in five minutes. I read a story years ago about a, a pastor that used to pray routinely for twenty minutes to forty minutes in his pastoral prayer. And people would come to that church from a great distance with notebooks. And they would take notes as he prayed. That's one of the most important things that goes on on Sunday morning. Charles Spurgeon used to say, listen, I'm not as concerned about who's in the pulpit as I am who's praying that pastoral prayer. Why? Well, as we start to see the intimacy that's really here and really present here, we begin to understand why, don't we? Look at this. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own knows me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And then when he adds this last part, it just is the last piece of the puzzle, and it all comes together. He says, I laid down my life for the sheep. He laid his life down for us, not quietly in in a corner somewhere where no one noticed, but publicly in shame, taking our sin debt upon himself so that it could be removed from us. It's absolutely amazing and astounding. In verse 16, we should be very thankful for this verse. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, After his resurrection, he will charge the church to go out to the ends of the earth, and these are the other sheep. And I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. (coughs) For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. We can trip over verse 17. We can think that the Father loves Jesus. On the surface, we might think. I don't think we'd think it very long, because we know better. That the Father loves Jesus because he lays his life down. Almost as like the father's waiting to see what Jesus will do, and then he'll love him. That's not the case. We know that. What we see here, in fact, I think I put a note to this effect. Mutual love, that's the phrase I'm looking for. What we see there is mutual love. Jesus loves the father. He loves, and in loving the father, he obeys the father and submits to the father in all things. And, of course, the father himself basks in the love of Jesus, and that's what we see displayed there. Jesus makes it clear, no one takes it from me. In other words, no one takes my life from me, verse 18, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again, this charge I have received from my Father. And then we have discussion in verses 19, 20, and 21. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them are charging him as having a demon and being insane. Why listen to him? See, nothing has changed, has it? Look at verse 21. Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Now, you see that verse right there connects it to chapter 9, doesn't it? See that? They're making reference to the healing of the blind man in chapter 9. I think it's enough for this morning. What do you think? Shall we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, it's hard to follow up, um, especially verses 14 and 15, with any kind of utterance, at least from the English language. Father, we thank you for the intimacy that's in, that we enjoy, that we know so little about, that perhaps this morning you'll teach us more and more about, and perhaps even as we come to the table this morning, as we celebrate Holy Communion, perhaps, Lord you will use this as a means of grace. Uh, continue us, O oh Father, in, our, in the deepening of our understanding of this union of which Jesus speaks. O oh Father, we thank you, Lord, we, that you've given us ears to hear Jesus' voice. We could hear his voice calling us just like the bland, blind man heard Jesus calling him to go to the pool of Siloam and be washed. He unhesitatedly made his way to the Pull of Siloam where he expected to be washed. Your sheep hear your voice. Oh, Father, we thank you. And we thank you, Father, that you have other sheep that you must call. And, Father, we pray that you would call those sheep. We pray, Father, uh, that you would call them. Call them, oh, Father, and call them and call them and bring them, oh, Father, into the fold. And we pray, oh, Father, that, Lord, uh, you would continue to advance your kingdom for your glory, we pray. Oh, Father, there's so many other things we could pray for this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.